This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you information that you can trust, and you can trust that will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by our Catholic Church. And in this episode, our guest will be Dr. Peter Rosario, a pulmonologist and critical care physician from Evansville, Indiana. In this age of discussion at national and local levels about immigration, he's going to talk about the medical care of the undocumented immigrant. But before we get to that, we have some medical news items to discuss. And the two items I chose to discuss today deal with sleep, something that my OBGYN co-host knows less about than his dermatologist host, yours truly. Sleep is a drug to which we become addicted at a young age. <laughs> yes, yes we do. And thanks be to God, I get as much as I need, which is usually seven to seven and a half hours a night. And so in two studies, we learn a little bit more about sleep. The first study goes by the mundane name of Selection for Long and Short Sleep Duration in Drosophila melanogaster reveals a complex genetic network underlying natural variation in sleep. That's easy for you to say, Tom. No, it actually isn't, but it's probably easy to fall to sleep too. So what this study really did and what it means is that fruit flies, that's the Drosophila melanogaster part, fruit flies grow from egg to adult in 7 to 11 days and then usually die by 30 days. So that you go through a lot of cycles of them really, really fast. So if you want to try to breed something into them or breed something out, you can do it and get the results quickly. It would take it a lot longer if you were using elephants, you know, something with a long lifespan. Not much lab research done with elephants. A lot done with fruit flies. So what they wanted to see is not so much why we sleep, that's still a mystery, but they wanted to see can they breed flies to be longer or shorter sleepers than average. And what they found out is that after breeding only seven generations of fruit flies, which took less than six months, they were able to get two groups of fruit flies separate from the control group. One group they bred that needed 10 hours less sleep per night than the long sleepers, and over 14 hours less per 24 hours. So what they came up with was a short sleeping group that only needed three and a half hours of sleep a night, a long sleeping group that needed over 14 hours of sleep per night. And there were no unusual mutations. They just bred short sleeping males with short sleeping females and got even shorter sleeping ones. And what they learned where the control group slept seven hours a night, which is pretty much human average, we'll get to that, is that this didn't affect their ability to produce new generations of fruit flies in all other ways they were healthy. So there's a lot of variability in how much sleep we need. So, so what do fruit flies have to do with humans? Well, they have found that with many genes that they study in fruit flies, there is a similar gene in our DNA in humans that does something analogous to what it does in the fruit fly. Is it too much of an extension or an extrapolation to suggest that is this is this explanation as to why some of us seem to not require as much sleep as others? That's exactly right. It, it makes sense out of that. Which brings me to the second study or, or another study that commented on this that said that, you know, the human average for sleep worldwide seems to be about seven hours per night. And in fact, if you get less than six hours of sleep per night, on average, you have a 12% increase in mortality compared to those who get six to eight hours a night. But those who get more than eight hours a night have a 30% increased mortality versus those who sleep six to eight hours. This means that my teenagers are at risk of dying from sleeping 14 <laughs> hours a day. Yes, yes, you, you have freedom to tell them that. So yes, they have shorter lifespans and more sickness if they sleep more than eight or less than six hours. However, that's not everybody. Some people, that is just all that they need. And so if men and women who don't need much sleep marry each other, their kids are probably going to end up needing less sleep. Isn't it funny how some people seem to be able to recover completely from just a 15-minute nap, whereas others seem to lack the ability to nap and recover? Yes, that would be me. <laughs> but if I get my seven hours a night, I'm happy. That's one reason I'm in dermatology, because <laughs> I get to sleep at night. Yes, I am addicted. Well, the second study actually is one from a journal called Neuron, which is the name for uh, a cell in the nervous system, a neuron. This one's called 
old brains become uncoupled in sleep. What does that mean? Well, at the University of California in Berkeley and Irvine, they did a, a very elegant study of young adults in their 20s and older adults in their 70s. And before they went to bed, they gave them a memory test. They had to learn a, 120 different words and repeat back as many as they could and then go to sleep. And when they woke up, they were then quizzed on this. And what they did while they were asleep is they did an EEG, an electroencephalogram, and they, so they were looking at brain waves. And what they saw is there are two types of waves that were important in kind of synchronizing memories. There is a slow one and a fast one. And a certain part of the slow one and the fast one had to happen at the same time for memories to be stored away. And guess what? These were not occurring at the same time in the older adults. And the example they give is a tennis serve. The slow wave would be lobbing the ball up in the air. The fast wave would be the racket coming down quickly to hit the ball. So the older people were tossing the ball up and was hitting the ground before they'd swing the racket. Whereas the young people were tossing the ball and hitting it with the racket and hitting the ball into that part of the court where the memory was stored. The old people the memory was just staying there at the surface and never getting into where it needed to be stored. So we now have a reason related to sleep cycles why our memories might not be as good when we're older. But there's hope in this study in that there is a, probably a way that we can do a form of brain stimulation to salvage this learning and memory. And this group is going to start studying that now. So I think this is fascinating. Hope for improved memories as we get older. And, and not to say the least of uh, the ability to find our keys as we age. Yes. And somebody told me something fascinating. They said, not remembering where your keys are is not a sign of Alzheimer's, but forgetting what the keys are for is. Absolutely. So if you just turned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. And we're in the middle of the news segment, and we're now moving from the news segment to Chris's health tip of the day. Today's health tip, Tom, comes to us again from the United States Preventive Services Task Force. And we're going to talk about something that's very near and dear to the heart of many of our listeners, and that is mammography. Did you see how I did that? Near to the heart, mammography? Yes, it is near to the heart. It's anatomically correct. You are always. So most everyone, I think, our listeners would, would, would raise their hands and say, yes, I know what a mammogram is, and I know that a woman should have one. But there's been a lot of change in the, in the research and the recommendations as to how often and when women should have those mammograms. And just to remind everyone, a mammogram is an X-ray that looks at a woman's breast and detects very minute calcium depositions that are either the precursors of cancer, that is, they precede the cancer, or it finds cancer at a very, very early, early stage. So the U.S., uh, the United States Task Force, as I mentioned, recommends biannual, that means every two years or every other year, mammography for women aged 50 to 74. Now, that's probably surprising to a lot of our listeners. Because they probably think younger women should have it. Well, the decision to start screening mammography in women prior to age 50, they say, should be an individual one. Uh, and then screening every other year or twice uh, twice biannual screening, that is, should begin between the ages of 40 and 49. Now, this is confusing. And if we look to the American Cancer Society and some of the other national organizations, they don't all agree on the recommendations, even though they're all looking at the same data. So women 40 to 49, it's suggested that they begin mammography screening at a younger age and screening more frequently that it could increase the risk for overdiagnosis uh, of things that are not cancer. That's why there's a recommendation to pull back and not screen so frequently on those women 40 to 49. So what do you recommend to your patients? Well, we're talking about, and these uh, guidelines point out, this is for the average woman of average risk. Right. So women who themselves have had breast cancer or they have a strong family history of breast cancer, they represent a special circumstance. But if we think about the three takeaways from this recommendation, there'll be this, and I even have a bonus takeaway. <laughs> Number one, this is a complicated and confusing topic. It requires a trusting relationship with a healthcare provider. It should not be presented as simple or simplistic, and if it is, I think you should get advice elsewhere. 
The second one is you need to know and discuss your family history when you meet with your health care provider. The difference between a distant relative with breast cancer uh, and no family history of breast cancer could dramatically change the recommendations for your screening. And third, uh, the greatest breast cancer prevention strategy there is if you, don't, if you smoke, stop and don't start. If you drink alcohol, do so in moderation. Those are the big three. And then I'll throw an extra one in for the listeners this time. There's a terrific website called hereditarycancerquiz.com, and we'll put it on our webpage for listeners. But that allows you to enter some data about your family history and determine if you have an increased risk and determine if you're, an, if you're a good candidate for a special kind of genetic testing that can be done to determine if you have a breast cancer gene. And if you do? Well, if you do, you may be eligible for increased screening that involves MRIs of the breast instead of just mammograms. And, you know, I'll finish with another controversial topic on this, and that is self-breast exam and clinical breast exam. That is, a physician examining the breast and the patient examining her own breast. And interestingly, there's not sufficient data to show that either of those improve survival. There's no data that says it does any harm, but there's really no data that says that it's of any benefit. Now, that's a sacred cow that's hard wow. for us to slaughter in medicine, isn't it? Yes, that, that is not intuitive. Most breast cancers are detected by women doing during normal daily activities like dressing or bathing, not on physical examination. Well, thank you. I know many of our listeners find this area incredibly pertinent to their lives. And it sounds like mammograms in those under 50 are becoming less common and less reimbursed by insurance. I, I can't speak specifically to insurance because, as you know, that varies so greatly from yes. market to market and place to place. But from 40 to 49, a mammogram or two may be sufficient for the average risk woman. And certainly that from 50 on, it becomes much more prevalent. And after the age of 74, it really hasn't been shown to be of any value. Thank you very much, Chris. And before we go to our first break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. We can cue the music. Drum roll. It's a simple question. What is the only bone in the human body not connected to another bone? And why is it important? So what is the only bone in the human body not connected to another bone? And why is it important? We'll be right back with Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, aim to be trustworthy sources of medical information, especially for Catholics. Today, we're going to interview Dr. Peter Rosario, He's a specialist in critical care and pulmonary medicine from Evansville, Indiana. He's the Catholic Medical Guild president for the Southwest Indiana Catholic Medical Guild and the co-regional director for the Catholic Medical Association in the four states of Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio. Welcome to Dr. Doctor, Peter. Thank you. Glad to be here. Medical care of the undocumented immigrant. Peter, what is an undocumented immigrant? So an immigrant is someone who is foreign-born but not holding a U.S. citizenship, basically an alien. And in the United States, of course, uh, you need to be have proper authorization, and that usually in, involves a visa, which allows one to, to work or to be a resident in, in the country. And so an undocumented immigrant is someone who is an immigrant but without proper authorization. And they've and, also been called illegal immigrants, is that true? Yes, because in fact they are in the country illegally after they're either because they have no authorization or because they may have had prior authorization through a visa, but they overstay their visa. Peter, and you, at that point they become undocumented. Peter, could you give us a sense of, uh, of sort of the denominator? How many, how many undocumented immigrants are there in America, or do we even know? Yes, uh, there's a slightly over 11 million individuals who are undocumented. At least this is what what is given as the demographic. And the interesting part is that they believe that this number has remained stable over the past 10 years. 
it really hasn't um, increased or decreased uh, uh, by much at all over those over the last ten years. So I'm guessing there are a number of undocumented immigrants in your area in southern Indiana. Yes, and in fact, you know, it's just it's it's nationwide at this point. My initial exposure was really when I was in practice in the southern part of New Mexico. I did a fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine in Albuquerque and then went into practice for 11 years in the southern part of the state. So that was my first exposure to undocumented individuals. And to be quite frank with you, I I really never knew who was documented and who was not documented because I never asked. It was just a patient that needed to be treated, and that was my that was my um, direction to to provide care. But uh, anyway, the um, uh, through the years now, uh, I've, I've come to realize that this is just not a an area uh, close to the border, such as Arizona, New Mexico, Texas. It's it's just across the whole country. So you're going to find illegal immigrants in every state. So Peter, our listeners are maybe wondering. Medical care for the undocumented immigrant, how is that different from medical care for anyone else? What kind of problems do these patients experience that makes it a a unique set of of health issues? Well, part of the problem is is that they don't have, many of them don't have insurance, and they also are fearful of, of, of deportation. So they don't seek medical care in a timely fashion. They they usually present when they're when they're more ill, and uh, and so the challenges are are then to try to care for individuals who are sicker in general. But the diseases themselves are no different uh, than than the general population. So diabetes, high blood pressure, heart, kidney, and lung diseases, cancer, and stroke. These are all problems that the undocumented immigrant will will face only that they're usually more severe when they when they present because of failure to have maintenance uh, treatment in the past. Now, we've read in the news that our current president is uh, more tough on immigration, at least in rhetoric, than our previous president. Uh, although it's interesting, if you look at the data, actually in the first year under President Trump, 6% less immigrants were deported than were in the last year under President Obama. However, President Trump talks tough. And do you think that this is one reason that undocumented immigrants are staying out of daylight more than ever, that they're not going to clinics or or pharmacies or sometimes even outside to exercise because of this fear of deportation? Yeah, absolutely. There's definitely a, a fear, a fear of uh, going to the hospital and then being hospitalized and then having immigration show up in the hospital and, and deporting them. And so they stay away from they stay away from pharmacies and doctors and 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 clinics and uh, that's that's a that's a real problem. And I think there's something else that is very relevant to about 700,000 young adults in the country now who are known colloquially as dreamers that these were people brought from outside the United States as children by their parents. And if their status is not resolved by March of 2018, they might be legally deported. Are you familiar with this? Yes, yes. So it's becoming even more urgent for the treatment of these people. Can you tell us about some of your experience with undocumented immigrants needing medical care? Yeah. Let me just, before talking about some of the the dreamers and and the situation there, let me just go back. Many of the the undocumented immigrants are are people who who have overstayed their visa, as I said. They come here, the visas are granted usually for agricultural work and other types of work. The work that, that is mostly done by these individuals is jobs that are low-skilled, labor-intensive work. So they're they're involved with cleaning services, agriculture, meatpacking, the restaurant business, construction, landscaping, etc. And their work has been described by the three Ds, dirty, difficult, and dangerous. <laughs> and yet they make up over 5% of the U.S. workforce. And if you look at agricultural workers, they're over 20%. And you may not be aware of this, but but the agricultural industry 
has the highest morbidity and mortality, that is, people who die and people who get very uh, ill or have accidents and are, are, have trauma from accidents, they're, they're the highest uh, of any occupation other than construction. So, so we're not only are we are, are they doing these dangerous jobs and difficult and low skilled and not getting a lot of money for it, but they come nonetheless because they can they can provide for their families. This is really why they're here. Um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric about uh, about uh, felons and so on and so forth. Uh, that's that's just a very rare. Uh, problem. They come because they need work. They need work to provide for their families. So Any good parent wants to do that. And for our listeners, if you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today we're discussing medical care for undocumented immigrants with Dr. Peter Rosario of Evansville, Indiana. Peter, at this time, would you like to tell us a little bit about your own encounters with such patients? Yeah, so, so aware of this, uh, I first started seeing seeing patients when I first went into practice, and and there was one uh, gentleman that came in was brought in by his employer, and he was uh, he worked in the agricultural industry, and the the employer was uh, was a very good person because he said you know whatever it costs, whatever the expenses are, I'll, I'll cover them. I didn't ask whether he, this gentleman was uh, was documented or not. I treated his his problem and and we went on from there. But I've also encountered other uh situations, one in particular kind of a sad case of a of a man, a young man uh, who came up from Mexico was working in the agricultural industry, ended up in an accident and rendered him um, paralyzed from the waist down. And we really struggled to get him uh, the proper care, rehabilitation, a wheelchair, a motorized wheelchair, and finally uh, get him back to his home in Mexico. The employer was not was not uh, very generous in this regard, and so a lot of uh, a lot of the payment for his services that was needed uh, that that were needed came from uh, came from individuals and uh, Catholic charities and, and other organizations. So this this is this is a real a real struggle. And now with the Dreamers, the, these individuals, which number about seven hundred thousand have uh, many of them high school and college diplomas then they represent more of a skilled workforce they really don't have much connection to their their origin uh, their place of origin particularly in regarding to their culture and their family and, and even their language so so they really need to stay in in this in this in this country because i think they can add a lot to the to the workforce and i've met some of these people i'm on the board of trustees at a at a college, and they are bright. They seem like anybody who was born in this country their age. They're definitely part of our culture, while they also exhibit many aspects of their uh, culture of origin. Uh, and you're right, they, they're, they're in a limbo that is not of their own choosing. Yeah, and it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, as, as you said, many of these are well-educated people that can be of value to, to service here in, in the United States. You know, Peter, from a church teaching perspective, are you is, is there something we can share with our listeners in terms of church teaching and understanding as a, as a faithful Catholic of how we should approach medical care for this patient group of undocumented uh, immigrants? Yeah, I in in looking at this, I I did look at at documents from from the church and the catechism of the Catholic Church has the following quotation and and I quote, the more prosperous nations are obliged to the extent they are able to welcome the foreigner in search of the security and the means of livelihood which he cannot find in his country of origin. Immigrants are obliged to respect with gratitude the material and spiritual heritage of the country that receives them to obey its laws and to assist in carrying civic burdens. So I, I think the church makes it very, very plain that we should welcome the foreigner and we should be caring for these individuals, both from a medical standpoint, social standpoint, and spiritual standpoint. It's interesting hearing you say that. I, 
I think back to Pope Francis during his American visit and paraphrasing uh, completely, but I remember him saying something along the lines of, we're all immigrants. Um, Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Well, on that note, we'll end this quarter of the show. We're interviewing Dr. Peter Rosario about the medical problems of undocumented immigrants here on Dr. Doctor, where we discuss health matters because people matter. We're back with Dr. Doctor, and we're joined by Dr. Peter Rosario, a critical care and pulmonary medicine physician with expertise in medical care of the undocumented immigrant. Peter, we're so happy to have you with us. As we continue our discussion, I wonder if you could help our listeners understand some of the barriers that individuals and families in this situation might face. Yes, the undocumented immigrant has barriers to health care that are not readily uh, evident in, 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 in other individuals. And they include language. They include the culture. Uh, many of them will have a false identity for fear of being deported, so they have a, a false identity. They'll have two names or uh, a different Social Security number. Of course, literacy and understanding what is happening is important and sometimes a real problem. Uh, And then availability of family support, because some of these individuals have been in this country, as I said earlier, for over 10 years, but they have not connected with their family. They send them money, they send them back money to, to, for support, for their education, and, and so on, but they really haven't connected with them. And so when they become ill, sometimes it's very difficult to, to connect with family and have them come, come visit, uh, and so uh, lack of family support uh, is, is, is a problem at times. And then also, friends will pose as family. A um, <laughs> couple of cases where uh, a lady was uh, saying, uh, I- I'm this person's sister, uh, and and it eventually came out that not only was the, the ill individual using uh, a false name, but the so-called sister was really just a friend. In other cases of a gentleman who posed as a brother, and and the severity of the illness required this man to start making some, some end-of-life issue decisions, and and of course, at that point, he he became frightened about making any of those kind of decisions, and and uh, was quick to say, you know, I, I'm just a friend. I'm not really his brother. So so those those issues really come up. So and, it's... and and as well as trust, you, you know, they they uh, I mean, there is this issue of, of are the doctors really treating me the way they should? There's the issues of trust. So. Sure, I wonder if they think that doctors are treating them differently just because of their status. Absolutely. It must be really hard for them to know where to go or what to do when they're sick. But if they really want to go somewhere, where can they go, Peter? Well, this is uh, uh, this, <laughs> this is a real problem. Many of them, of course, don't have any insurance. Some are able to get some insurance through the work uh, place. But many aren't, and for instance, Obamacare has written into the law that these individuals, undocumented immigrants, are not eligible for any insurance. Now, they can get, there are some safety net options, and by that I mean there are some ways with which they can be treated medically and, and, and have their expenses covered, at least temporarily. One of those is the emergency Medicaid program, which is basically like a catastrophic health insurance. It takes place only in emergent situations. And once the emergency is taken care of, and maybe the patient still has ongoing chronic disease, but it's stable, the insurance uh, ends. And so they're, uh, they're out of any funds. So do they apply for this insurance, or do they just uh, show up at an emergency room and receive it? It's usually uh, usually through the emergency room. Yeah, they'll get it. Now, now, now there are there are other uh, uh, there are federally funded public health centers and nonprofit community health centers and private charities. But again, these are uh, oftentimes limited in their in their scope of of care. Well, in preparing for this interview, I came across something that is frightfully common, and that is some of these people have kidney failure. And to survive, they need hemodialysis or just dialysis. 
And yet, under what you're discussing, the emergency Medicaid, they're only allowed to have dialysis if they're in danger of death. So they go to an emergency room, they have dialysis, and then they go back home until they get fearful of dying again, and then they go back in. I I don't see how people could live in this cycle of constantly having to get on death's doorstep before you can be seen again. Well, that's that's absolutely absolutely right. And in fact, there was this year, earlier this year, a study done in Denver which addressed that very issue of people with uh, end-stage kidney disease who were on dialysis and who had to become uh, meet certain uh, criteria in which they were very ill in order to get the dialysis. And and so they're really living on, as you say, death doorstep, and and many of these people will um, will have cardiac arrest before they're properly treated, and and even some of them, uh, in order to meet criteria for through the emergency room, will uh, will drink extra fluids that is not helpful. Oh. They, re- they retain extra fluids, or they'll eat foods that are high in potassium, one of the chemicals that tends to go up in kidney failure. And so they want to make sure that they're, they're able to, to get uh, treatment. <clears throat> but, of course, it makes them much sicker. If and you, it's, it's, oh, I'm just going to say, if our listeners just joined us, they're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're interviewing Dr. Peter Rosario today about the medical care of undocumented immigrants. Please continue, Peter. So there, there were some centers which were actually allowing patients to come through the emergency room on a regular basis, not on an emergent basis. In Houston, Texas, they were doing this, and they were paying for the dialysis through taxes, to a county tax. Unfortunately, there are more people who need dialysis than they're able to provide for, but at least it was one way to reduce the the cost because what they found in the Houston study as well as in in the Denver study that I quoted earlier that that it's almost four times more expensive to care for these individuals than if they just provided routine care, routine uh, dialysis. That's, that's fascinating. It should have public policy implications, we would think. Uh, yes, absolutely. Now, Peter, what are the downsides to these safety net options besides what you just said, that they wait until they're at death's doorstep? Are there other downsides to these community health clinics or emergency rooms for the undocumented immigrant? Well, again, it's it's one thing to to have the service. is another thing for the for the persons to come in. And again, the fear of deportation and other issues limits their their use of, of, of these facilities, not to mention the fact that there are, these facilities are limited uh, by themselves. So I, I, I think that's, that's, a, that, that's a big part of it. And of course, when you don't have continuous maintenance medical care, that's when you're going to run into bigger problems. And one of the one of the more interesting aspects of this is that is that some of these individuals who are on dialysis are able to to work but when they have to go into an emergency situation and they're our and they and they 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 may or may not be admitted and if they are admitted to the hospital it's for longer periods of time and all of a sudden their work hours become erratic and they lose their job so it 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 really is um, better to provide care, provide uh, maintenance care, and, and to take care of these people with chronic renal failure who need dialysis on a regular basis so they can maintain their job and, and also uh, prevent more serious illness. Well, Peter, it's a, tough, it's a tough topic. I don't think anybody could disagree with that, but we're not afraid of putting you on the spot. How do we get, how do we get past this problem? What, what do we as a country and what do we as caring individuals, what do we do to try to get at a solution for this devastating problem? Well, I, obviously, we, we need to have a comprehensive, comprehensive uh, immigration reform. We, we, need to, we need to somehow have immigrants come into this country lawfully and, and because they do provide a service, and we need to, 
to to have the people who are here who are working and productive to to be able to to remain here and whether we provide more uh, health clinics or provide for insurance, uh, whether we have taxes that might cover particular health issues, uh, all these are, 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 are possibilities. There's a, there's a um, series of clinics for migrant workers in the, uh, on the East Coast, which are called Farm Worker Family Health Program. This could be a, a type of clinic that could be spread to other areas of the country. Uh, and and so I, I I think there are ways that we can uh, that 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 we can we can help. Uh, I think uh, from a physician standpoint, from a or from a healthcare standpoint, immigration status really should not matter. I think this is made clear in the church's teachings. We we need to treat people equally. Uh, I mean, they're human beings. The dignity of that individual should be first and foremost. We should, uh, you know, try to understand their culture and uh, and try and build trust with these individuals so that they 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 can come and and be properly treated. Peter, in these clinics on the East Coast, these farm worker ones, who staffs them and how are they funded? They're a, a, it's a government funded program, and and actually uh, medical students uh, will fund uh, will um, will medical students and residents will will come and uh, and staff these so it's a, it's a good experience for, yes. for for medical students and for residents and interns you know it's tricky it's probably a sign of the times and our national discourse has become so so polarized on every single topic but it's tough for for us to talk about the need to control our borders and control our population and at the same time extend the compassionate care that uh, that our profession demands uh, and rightfully so it's a tough. We have a hard time as a country having that discussion, don't we? Well, we do. And I mean, from one aspect, they are uh, undocumented immigrants are illegally here. And they should be in some way, um, I hate to use the word punishment, but maybe a, maybe a fine or something of that nature. But I don't think deportation is, is the answer rounding them up and, and sending them all back. There, there's, a, there's a great need for, for individuals doing the kind of work they do. And so I, th- I think there should be some kind of a... A path uh, to citizenship. A, a path to citizenship, an adjustment made. Uh, again, you, you know, should there be some fine or some, some kind of a, something done to, to indicate that, 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 that there was an illegal act performed, maybe so, but not, a, not, not, not the kind of punishment where we, uh, where we send people back, particularly people who have been in this country from the very beginning and, are, and, and just don't have any, uh, any connection with their, with their um, country of origin. Well, Peter, we're at the end of our time. Is there anything specific you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Well, the only thing uh, again uh, beyond the medical and the and the and the and the political process, I think, I think the the church uh, has always stood for care, even going back to the Middle Ages. You know, when it established hospitals and hospice uh, type type facilities in, in 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 monasteries and so on. And and you know, the prayers have always been present in the church for those who are ill and sick and and in need. And I think. I think I would leave. At least we can do that much to to hope and, and pray that, uh, that there's a, a solution to this problem that that will meet needs and and satisfy the, the what we're called to be as as Catholics. Well, thank Peter, you, Peter. Thank you for for joining us and thank you for your work and God bless you and God bless the work that you do. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we discuss health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud coming to you from Redeemer Radio Studios. And Tom, I know our listeners, as always, are anxiously awaiting the answer to today's trivia question. And i got to tell you, I've been working on this one, and it's pretty tough to swallow. <laughs> no hint there to the answer for this question. What is the only bone not connected to another bone in the human body, and why is it important? 
Well, the name of that bone is the hyoid bone. That's spelled H-Y-O-I-D, hyoid. And the name literally means it's shaped like the Greek letter U. And it is shaped like a, a letter U. And this is located above the answer to a trivia question from a previous show. That is, it's just above the Adam's apple. It's kind of at the front of the neck where it meets the, the back of the chin. And if you squeeze on your windpipe and slide it back and forth between your thumb and index finger, you can actually feel that U-shaped bone in there. Tom, for mystery TV and book lovers, isn't it always there's frequently a reference to fracture of the hyoid bone in strangulation That's cases? exactly right. That's about the only way this gets broken is by strangulation or that horrible clothesline type of injury. And this little bone protects the esophagus or the food tube and actually anchors the tongue in location. And there are some scientists who believe that our ability to speak as human beings, a broader range of sounds than animals, is partially due to the position that this puts our larynx or voice box in with respect to our tongue. But it does facilitate a wide range of both speaking and swallowing movements and helps our tongue and larynx to work together. So that is the hyoid bone, something useful to know maybe over cocktails or if you're really not sure what you want to talk about. We'll move to our next segment now, uh, having a special extra time with Dr. Eustace Fernandez, who's going to talk about physician-assisted suicide. You know, Tom, time with Dr. Fernandez is always valued, but especially on this important topic. Yes, it is. And for our listeners, if you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio with a special guest in studio, Dr. Eustace Fernandez today, who is going to talk about physician-assisted suicide. It sounds like an oxymoron. It just doesn't make sense, does it? No. You know, when I was growing up in uh, Toledo, Ohio, just to the north of us uh, in Detroit area, there was this doctor who was helping patients die. And he'd film it and he'd go to their homes. And, and his name was Dr. Jack Kevorkian. And I remembered thinking, this is such a bizarre occurrence. How contrary to the idea of being a doctor. I grew up in, in, uh, with, with my dad being a solo practice primary care physician, and I watched how he cared for his patients from beginning to end of life. And I thought, how could it be that a doctor could violate his oath in, in such a fashion? I grew up in Michigan, so that was very, part, very much a part of my growing up, too. And it just seemed so out there that nobody could possibly support this guy. But what's happened in the ensuing decades? Well, I think our culture has moved to this idea that whatever is true, whatever is right for me, I should be permitted to do. So it's this idea, uh, this principle of autonomy, this idea as Americans, we want to determine what happens to us next. We, in some senses, have lost this idea that fundamentally we belong to God. Our lives are not our own. And ultimately, we return to God. And so that allows a person who might be afflicted with a disease, either terminal or non-terminal, to say, you know what, I'm tired of this. I want to move on. My life is of no more use to me, of no more value to me, and therefore I will end my life. And as the years have played out and as I practice medicine, this notion, this false sense of autonomy has sort of gained ground, and, and there are several states in the United States that have legalized physician-assisted suicide. But if we tried to put ourselves in the mindset of the person advocating for this, I'm guessing they're thinking, this person is suffering, I'm a caregiver, it would be noble if I could somehow eliminate their suffering. Is, sure. is that the... So, uh, so we can eliminate someone's suffering without eliminating the sufferer. So <laughs> that's, that's the key point. And, and, and you know, the, the hospice movement, which many of us have had personal experience with, with family members, is, is, was founded by a Catholic nurse. And it's this idea that when medical science and medical healing has no more to offer the person, we can't abandon the person. We have to uh, respect the dignity of each human person from conception to natural death. And that means alleviating suffering, 
providing comfort, both spiritual and medical comfort, to those individuals. And 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 those things don't devol- uh, don't involve directly killing a patient or uh, facilitating a patient taking their own life. It's interesting. I've heard it said that by killing a patient you don't end their suffering because they no longer have the opportunity to suffer because they don't exist. Well, I think you're right. And and it's it's an interesting way to think about it because it begs the question, how do we look at suffering and do we value suffering? Or is it simply this this grind that we go through, this thicket we go through before we die? As Catholics, of course, we believe our suffering is is sanctified by Christ's own suffering. So our suffering has its meaning because of Christ's suffering. So he redeemed even that. So if we try and adopt the mind of Christ, our suffering actually has meaning. Doesn't mean we need to go out and seek as much suffering as possible. It you doesn't know, mean our Lord doesn't desire our happiness and, and, uh, and you know, all of us, you know, it, it was a, a great tradition to pray to St. Joseph for a happy death, which means dying in the arms of Jesus and Mary. You know, I think it's just impossible to think about human suffering without thinking about the the amazing model that St. John Paul showed the world about suffering. Instead of hiding it, it, he seemed almost on a mission to expose his suffering. And I know that that played a tremendous part in my own personal conversion, but suffering has redemptive value. It sure does. Um, Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II, we can look at pictures of him as a vigorous young man and as a young pope skiing in the Alps, and then as a man who was confined to a wheelchair and could move only his arm and who had a tracheostomy and who couldn't get words out. And he was sort of a living crucifix to me. And, and you know, as someone who was going through medical training around the time that he passed away, it was deeply moving and I can I can recall the pictures of of him in his last suffering, and I I, I, I bring those to mind whenever I'm I'm searching for meaning in my own suffering or in the suffering of a patient. You know, I wonder. It's very common to euthanize an animal, maybe a family pet, because of a, of a disease or a pain or some suffering that the animal is experiencing, and I wonder to what extent the extension into euthanizing a human comes from the culture and its ability to to strip our appreciation of the dignity of the human person. We're not just the next organism in line, but we are different. We are. And I think in the intensive care unit where I spend a lot of my time with all of the technology and the machines and the tubes and the IVs, it can be very dehumanizing. You can forget at times that there is a human person who is brought into existence by the thought of, of a loving God and who has infinite value when they are sitting there um, and it's easier to think about them as, as a sack of organs or a piece of meat. So it can be a dehumanizing experience and that's a cautionary tale to anyone who works in healthcare is, is, that, is that people are people first, then they become your patient and that's a sacred charge. Eustace, have you ever had a patient ask you to, quote, put them out of their misery? Yeah, and it's, it's a disturbing conversation to have. And it, it's unfortunately, as the years go by, it becomes a more frequent conversation. I deal with people who can't breathe. And there's nothing really more miserable than someone who can't breathe, uh, than not being able to breathe. And so I, I can empathize with them again, understand their suffering. I can't tell them that their suffering is okay. But I can tell them that every minute that they're alive has value to God and that God has a mission for them every minute that they're alive. And their families, I often in, in those conversations, I draw in their family and I try and, and point out to them what, their family, what they mean to their family member and how we're not meant to make these decisions in a vacuum. And even if they're utterly useless in their own mind. They have infinite value to God and, and probably infinite value to their families. Something I heard recently against the idea that, oh, just help them die, it'll end their suffering, that there's absolutely no scientific evidence or evidence otherwise that their suffering is guaranteed to end just because they die. And I think that that's, I think that that is True. We don't know. You know, none of us have had the death experience until we have the death experience. So we don't know. Um, We know that the body lays still and eventually the heart stops and the breathing stops. Um, But 
we don't know what that experience is like. We also don't know in the states that have legalized physician-assisted suicide what actually happens to the patient, whether their death experience is a peaceful one, whether they actually die or don't die, whether they lay unresponsive by themselves in a room having seizures or vomiting or there's no way of, there's no safety mechanism in the physician-assisted suicide laws to ensure that the patient actually has a dignified death. We have no data on what actually happens to the ones who die. As we think about that, could you maybe point out the distinction between euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide? So euthanasia um, is where a healthcare provider usually decides that the patient's life is not worth continuing or that care is futile or that to the larger system, it doesn't make sense to continue life for that patient. So, so uh, the child or the adult or whomever is, is actually killed. Their life is ended by a healthcare provider. So in, in some Western European countries, this can, this can take place for children. The healthcare team can decide to euthanize a child and they're always encouraged to include the parents in the decision-making process, but they're not required to do so. Physician-assisted suicide means that the patient approaches a healthcare provider and says, I want to end my life, or I at least want the means to end my life. And the physician writes prescriptions that they ultimately, the patient will ultimately decide when they're ready to take those. This has been incredibly eye-opening. This has been Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Tom McGovern for Dr. Doctor, talking about physician-assisted suicide with Dr. Eustace Fernandez. Thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where Catholic doctors discuss medical matters because people matter. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And remember, your medical decisions may have eternal implications. So choose wisely and choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, Dr. McGovern and Dr. Mullally will talk with OBGYN Dr. Jonathan Scrafford about ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services and how they help Catholics navigate difficult issues in the practice of medicine. Hear Dr. Doctor Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or catch up on past episodes anytime at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.